Hello, and welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where usually we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, as you all know, we are live at LAFCON, the conference devoted to the also great science fiction writer R.A. Lafferty. Yeah, that's right. This is our first ever live show, so that's very, very exciting. Uh, And it's also our first time having a guest to help us cover the story. Uh, Today, we are honored to be joined by Gregorio Montejo, who, among other things, works on medieval philosophy and theology at Boston College. Gregorio, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Lafferty to a wider audience. Well, Gregorio, before we get into this story, can you just tell us a little about R.A. Lafferty and his approach to science fiction? Maybe the better way to ask that question is, what are two sentences you can tell us about Lafferty that will be important for the Wolf fan? Well, I I think of a a comment by a critic who once said that uh, Lafferty doesn't write in a genre. Lafferty is a genre. (laughs) I think that indicates that there's something utterly unique uh, about Lafferty and that the fact that he wrote in, science, in the science fiction field in some ways is a kind of historical accident. It just so happens that he came along at a period in the, in the, from the late uh, 50s up until the early 80s, a small window of opportunity when the field was open enough for someone as unique as Lafferty uh, to be welcomed into, into the genre. And there are some real connections between Lafferty and Wolf. Uh, they're both Catholic writers, science fiction writers who write through that lens. Uh, they're both engineers. Uh, and, of course, they also were both American soldiers who fought wars in Asia. Uh, Lafferty in the Second World War in the Pacific and Wolf in the Korean War. And Wolf wrote the introduction to Lafferty's uh, collection Episodes of the Argo, in which he claimed that Lafferty is the most original writer in science fiction. So that's why we're here. Uh, but, Brandon, I think the question remains, what are we actually doing today? Well, as was mentioned, we are here to cover Lafferty's short story, Snuffles, uh, which is a planetfall story by way of a morality play. It's pretty metaphysical, and it's also, in a strange way, a proto-slasher story. Um, (laughs) So we'll begin uh, our episode today by giving a brief synopsis of the story, and then we're going to be, it's going to be followed by a robust discussion. I think Brandon just listed seven or eight genres that Snuffles uh, falls into here. Uh, But maybe at at its core, Snuffles is a story about space exploration. And uh, specifically, it's a planetfall story that recounts the adventures of a team of scientists and explorers from Earth as they arrive on a new planet that is devoid of sentient civilization. Uh, I think I'll say a few words about the story setting. Uh, That world that they land on is called Balada, which is the Spanish word for acorn. Balada is small. It is only 100 miles around, yet it has far more gravity than a body that size should have. In fact, it has far more gravity than the moon or even Mars. Balada also rotates quickly. Uh, There are only four hours to a day, and the weather is also strange. It rains for five minutes out of every 15 And there is an omnipresent, multicolored lightning. And uh, Lafferty writes a real beautiful description of this that I'll share with you. In all their stay there, the party was never without the sound of thunder, near or distant, nor of the probe of lightning. And there's, I think, one more thing to to mention about the planet before we move on to the characters and then get into the plot. Uh, And that's the flora and the fauna of this strange planet. In this regard, Balada is a joker. 
everything is backwards. The fruits are awful, but the thorns turn out to be tasty. Butterflies sting, and lizards make honey. And the water is carbonated soda water. But most importantly, there is Snuffles. Snuffles is a bear of sorts. If the bear is a caricature of animal kind, somehow a giant dog and also a shaggy man, and also, of course, a toy, then Snuffles is a caricature of a bear. Snuffles is the largest creature on Balada, yet there seems to be only one of him, which is not normally how this works. Snuffles is smart. He's able to understand human actions and intentions, uh, if not exactly their speech, and even mimics their behavior. He can use a can opener, and he loves pretending to read if one of the explorers should happen to leave a book lying around. And he's very helpful. He brings firewood and bushels of acorns to these human explorers. All right, let's meet our cast of characters. There are six explorers from Earth. They're a mix of scientists, engineers, and people of action. And the plot of the story is going to focus on only two of these characters, so, so those are the ones that I'll talk about now. Brian Carroll is a naturalist who's been hunting for something all his life, though he doesn't know what that something is. He also hates pat endings, or really anything at all that is trite. Georgina Chantel is a biologist and also something of a misanthrope, or I don't know, at least she's aggressively guarded and private. She's the, the real introvert of the bunch, I think. All right, finally, last but perhaps not least, let's talk about the plot of this story. Now, there's an awful lot of interesting speculative content in the first act, and actually I think that's going to drive a lot of our discussion of this story, but I'm going to jump right into the second act when the action starts. Now, the action begins with an unusual flash of lightning, very bright, and it's followed by a new sound from Snuffles. And in that moment, everything changes. Snuffles attacks the explorers. He kills four of them almost instantly and only leaves Brian and Georgina alive because they are a little bit further away from the camp. (coughs) After watching their friends die, they know that Snuffles is going to come after them. Fortunately, their commander, John Hardy, had wounded Snuffles with a gunshot, and so Snuffles won't be able to catch Brian and Georgina until they themselves are too exhausted to run. And while there is no spaceship for them to take off on, the space marines who dropped them off on this planet will be back to pick them up, so they only need to evade Snuffles until then. So for nearly a week, they run, while Snuffles gives chase. Snuffles sleeps lightly during the day, the two-hour day, And he's roused if they try to continue running. And so Arctic characters also rest for those two hours and then continue the chase during the night. The edible flora on the planet has all become narcotic. And as Brian and Georgina eat this alien lotus, they begin to believe that Snuffles can speak with them telepathically. At first, they know that this is a hallucination, that it's just the drugs. But as the story progresses, they become less sure of that. And so do we, the readers. A Snuffles taunts them with the puzzle of his identity. He says things such as, You still do not know what I am, but you will have to learn it before you die. Hardy knew it at the last minute. Cross guessed it from the first. Some people are very hard to convince, but the girl knew it, and she spread out her hands. Later, he says that he actually made Balada, that he's the creator. And although he doesn't remember making all the other planets in the universe, He must have, because he is the creator. And I think we'll be unpacking that monologue quite a bit in the discussion. Well, after days of this, Brian and Georgina realize that they have gone nearly all the way around the planet. 
They're almost back at their camp where they will be able to take shelter and wait for the Marines. And they think that they have tricked Snuffles, but when they arrive at their camp, they find him there smoking the pipe of their friend Billy Cross. Snuffles sets the pipe down carefully and then kills them. And the story ends with a pair of short epilogues. And the first is the report of the Marines. And this indicates that the local fruit becomes seasonally narcotic, which seems to have been the cause of Snuffles' murderous rampage. And the second is a note about what happens to Snuffles now. Lafferty writes, The next world that Snuffles made embodied certain improvements. And he did correct the gravity error, but it still contained many elements of the grotesque. Perfection is a very long very hard road. And that brings our story to an end. So now we can get into the really fun parts and uh, get our discussion going. And we have, I don't know, fodder for about three hours of discussion, but we promise not to actually keep you guys here that long. Well, I think we're going to jump into, I think, probably the the real big meaty questions. We're really going to dig into some ontology and some epistemology, which is to say, what is the, the nature of reality and how do we know anything that we think that we know? Or perhaps another way to put that is the question that is really raised by this text, which is, is Snuffles really God? And if not, what is he? And I think we might start that out by thinking about Snuffles as a flawed and cruel creator. And I think this will let Gregorio sort of stretch his, uh, his legs here with some platonic and Gnostic readings of the, of the text. I'll give you a couple leading questions here that you can weave into your, uh, your response. So some of the questions that I think we had reading the text is, if Snuffles really did make this planet Bellata, why is everything on it all wrong? Why are the fruits uh, noisome and thorns tasty, for example? But also, if Snuffles created everything, if he is the single creator of the universe, why does he only remember creating Bellata? Why doesn't he remember creating me? Gregorio, I think we'll just let you have at it. All right. Well, those are are complex questions. So let let me give a little bit of background first. Uh, Early on in the story, Snuffles is uh, described as a demiurge. And I think that may be the key to a lot of what happens in the story. What's a demiurge? Well, one of the earliest introductions of that term is in the Platonic uh, philosophy. And it's, a, it's an attempt by Plato to explain not only the multiplicity of things in the world, but the fact that there's so much imperfection in the world. And so what Plato uh, explains is that there's, there's a realm of perfect forms. They're the perfect blueprints, the paradigms. And they're ideal, and they're eternal, and they're perfect because they do not have any physical components to them. Now, the material world is explained by this creature, the demiurge, who has access to the forms, uh, gazes upon the forms, and tries to imitate those perfect forms in a material way. But just by the very fact that he is trying to reproduce these forms physical in a physical environment already introduces an element of imperfection. Uh, there's a kind of an imitation that has a, a deep set flaw already in it. And this also has, so that's, that's the ontology. There's also an epistemological dimension to this because as physical creatures, Uh, in order for us to have access to the truth of things, in other words, to the forms, as 
embodied creatures, we have to go through the imperfect physical imitations of the forms to try to ascertain what those forms are actually like. So you can't, the, the, the model of reality also gives you a model of how we come to know. Let me complicate this question just a little bit by asking um, why, you know, we, we know from our point of view, and this is a, going to the old, you know, essentialism versus existentialism debate. Why does it take the humans coming on this planet for Snuffles to realize that his creation is all wrong? Yeah, well, I think to begin to answer that, we have to uh, take the background uh, that I just gave you and sort of expand a little bit more. Because there was a, 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 a philosophical slash religious movement in the early centuries of the common era called Gnosticism, which one of my old professors called Platonism on steroids. <laughs> and one of the hyper-Platonic elements of Gnosticism is that they take the imperfection of the material world uh, much further than even Plato would, would be comfortable with. And so there is, a, there is a Gnostic demiurge, or various Gnostic demiurges, because there is no such thing as just one Gnosticism. There were various schools of it. But one thing they share in common is that the idea that already the demiurge, because it's a semi-material, semi-physical being in the world, already an element not only of imperfection, but also a kind of malevolence and evil has been introduced. Because unlike Plato, who had a, a quite a bit of skepticism about the material world and its imperfections, the Gnostics believe that it's not just a flaw in the design or some inherent uh, lack of capacity uh, in the things of the world, that the world is the result of an original fall away from a spiritual realm. So materiality in itself is already evil. And the demiurge suffers to the extent that it's in the world, which means that this demiurge is going to create things that reflect its damaged, evil, materialistic uh, constitution. Brandon, you look like you're itching to get in here. Yeah, I do have, I mean, I have another question about this. Um, this story is, the characters in this story seem to, um, be against the doctrine of original sin, that there is no fall, that, it, that the characters say that, uh, or have a discussion in the story about how each person dies as a result of their own mistakes. Um, and in this story, it seems to me that there's levels of transgression, of boundary crossing that take place, and that this is the mistake that the humans make is that they create a boundary on a planet after crossing the threshold into the planet, which Snuffles may or may not be right in believing is his own world. Um, and so when you say that the, you know, there's already a sense of the fallenness in that demiurge, um, what do you make of the introduction of this conversation of each people, each person being responsible for their own fall in the story? Yeah. Well, I think this ties back into... Uh, part of your original question when you asked, well, this, this puzzling feature of the story that if Snuffles really is the creator, then why does he have s such a lack of memory about what he did? Shouldn't he have 
perfect uh, remembrance and knowledge of what, what he is and what he did. I think the lack of self-knowledge in, in Snuffles is because uh, the Gnostic demiurge uh, suffers from a lack of knowledge of where he came from, what his purpose is, and how it is that he's supposed to carry out his function, which is why he's such an imperfect creator. So beyond, beyond the platonic uh, demiurge who suffers from the fact that he needs to create things physically, the Gnostic demiurge uh, can't help but introduce the deep-seated flaws of sin even into his works. So his works are going to be even more warped, even less perfect than the platonic demiurge. So there's an, there's an element of ignorance in the, in the, the Gnostic demiurge. And this is a classic Gnostic uh, theme, right? The Gnostic uh, amnesia, that w- those who are trapped in the material world even lack the self-awareness of th- the fact that they're trapped here, that creatures are meant to be utterly, completely spiritual and that materiality is a, is a kind of prison. Okay? And this, I think, also then addresses the, the question as to why the explorers lack any uh, conception of, of the possibility that, they, that the world suffers from original sin. They also suffer from this Gnostic amnesia. They are also alienated from their true spiritual home, and they are also unaware of what the problem is, which is that they're trapped in matter. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was thinking as I was reading this story that Snuffles is kind of the the god that <laughs> these people deserve on some level. Um, they're all scientists. They're very caught up in empirical reality and rational processes. And this is the way um, that I read Snuffles as justifying his own existence, as if knowledge of him could be deduced by a simple rational process. Yeah, I mean... B- one of the central themes that runs throughout the narrative is the problem of knowledge. How do we access the truth, and how do we come to know what reality is? And that's a problem that's suffered equally by both Snuffles as the demiurge and the humans as his, as his creations, right? And the irony is that only through a kind of gnosis, a kind of knowledge, will they be able to break the bonds of materiality and discover their, their true faith or to their true goal, which is to shed uh, the material universe and return to their spiritual roots? Well, I think we still have to return to the question of, of Snuffles' nature. Uh, you, you call him the kind of Gnostic demiurge. We wondered if he was Satan. But there is a real... Um, a kind of leitmotif in the story about the carnival and Snuffle being the carnival king. And that, to me, um, I don't know, calls to mind a sort of sacred tradition of inversion for a festival. And we're, we're seeing that happen in the story. So I'd like to know how you connect this to the notion of Snuffles as the carnival king. Sure. Uh, before that, let me just directly address the question, is Snuffles uh, the devil? Some Gnostics would say absolutely, because they see uh, the, Nos- the creator god of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, Yahweh, as a demonic figure who creates a, a, a deeply evil, flawed universe 
uh, because of his evil and warped nature, because of his fallenness. Uh, how does that tie in with uh, whole, the whole notion of, of carnivals? Well, what is this notion of the, of the carnival? It's certainly uh, something that was present in the ancient world. It was carried over when Christianity uh, uh, brought over quite a bit of the ancient world, its customs, its culture, and so forth. And the idea in both its pagan and in its Christian uh, iterations is this idea that the well-regulated, the well-ordered universe will have periodic times set aside for the health of a society when there's a kind of playful inversion of the, of the usual order of things. Right? So one of the things that would happen in a carnival is that the social structures would be inverted. So, so those at the bottom strata for a while could enjoy all the freedoms of activity that was usually uh, reserved only for the high. And in a playful way, those in the highest positions were kind of the butt of jokes and so forth, and, and they, they, their status in society was lowered. And interestingly enough, someone like uh, G.K. Chesterton and Laffey, I think, would have been aware of the fact that the argument is that uh, for society needs to have these periodic uh, attempts where people need to let go from the, from the strictures of, of, of cultural and conceptual uh, hierarchies, that it's, it's, it's good for people to, to let go for a while. And as long as it's seen to to be played by certain rules, that it can only happen under certain circumstances at certain periods of time, then there, there's something that's there's there's a controlled chaos to the carnival. Uh, boundaries are transgressed, but within the larger boundaries of the knowledge that the carnival time will come to an end. Mm-hmm. Snuff, snuffles is directly tied in with uh, the mock king of the carnival, which was a figure that was uh, chosen by the people. He uh, was uh, given a mock crown, so he was usually chosen from the lower strata, but he was, for, for, the, for the sake of, for the duration of the carnival, he was elevated to what was also known as the Feast of Fools, the idea here is that there's going to have to be a, 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 a toastmaster, uh, an MC for, for, for this social anarchy, controlled social anarchy, who will be the master of revels for this, for this short duration. But that at the end of this period, the mock king will have his mock crown taken away from him. The inverted structures will revert back to their original uh, structures, and life will continue, hopefully uh, rejuvenated by this period of controlled chaos. Who then is this carnival period for on the planet? If the fate of the humans who go through this carnival period where they're eating narcotics for, uh, I don't know, a planet week or so, um, are going through this period. Is this for snuffles or is this for them? And what, what is going on with that section of the story? Maybe it's for the sake of the cosmos. Uh, early on in the story, it said that all the other worlds that have been discovered are ponderous. They're serious. 
they have a great amount of gravity to them, both uh, in the physical and in the conceptual terms. You know, they're deadly serious. Shouldn't there be one planet of out of the cosmos where the the laws of physics should be inverted, where gravity is not going to uh, function the way that it ordinarily does in all the other planets? In other words, it's a kind of carnival planet. And if we take this idea that the carnival has to be there within the grand scheme because there cannot be a well, a healthy, well-ordered hierarchy unless there's this element of inversion and playfulness, then just as a medieval society needed a period and a place of inversion and transgression, so does the cosmos. That's a that's a great reading on this story, I think, and a fantastic answer. So I want to I want to keep on this topic of of <laughs> carnival and ask you, Gregorio, what about the violence? Right, we get a lot of comedic descriptions of violence in this story. Right, the the the, the deaths of these explorers are narrated pretty gruesomely, but in a way that is meant to make us make us laugh. And I guess really, what I wonder is is how are these things fun rather than grotesque? And and maybe another way to put that is to ask, what is the good of laughing at violence in Lafferty's view? That takes quite a bit of unpacking. Uh, for, first of all, my, my reading of, car, of the place of Carnival and, and Snuffles uh, can be traced back to the, world, uh, to the work of a, a Soviet critic, uh, Mikhail Bakhtin. And uh, I have to give credit to Andrew Ferguson, uh, a great Lafferty scholar who's sitting in our audience right now, <laughs> who I think is the first Lafferty scholar ever to see the... Um, the utility of introducing Bakhtin's notion of, of, the, of the carnival as an explanation uh, for this story. In a larger sense, I think it also address, begins to address some of the questions of violence in Lafferty. Uh, earlier in the conference, we were talking about a novel in which the violence seems to be uh, directly tied to the fact that we have an amoral, Nietzschean, almost Nazi-like uh, protagonist and also the possibility that there's a kind of psychic component to, to the violence, so that it's, it's seen as a kind of uh, almost suicidal, psychotic <laughs> violence against the, the, the main character. Here I think the, the violence may have those kinds of elements, but I think you also need to see that there's a carnival-type violence here. Okay? The transgression of boundaries in a carnival uh, included not only transgressions of positions in society, but there was also a kind of transgression in a sexual sense. So uh, there could be a kind of a play, mocking way in which there was a kind of pointing towards the lascivious in a way that could not be uh, entertained in normal times. But there was also uh, the play acting of violence as well. And so the idea here is that there has to be a kind of release for, for even the human uh, lust towards violence if it's done in a playful, controlled way in, in, in order to avoid the real, the real thing, which would transgress and, and destroy boundaries in a, in a way that maybe society could not be put back together again. But I think there's, there's also uh, this aspect to Lafferty about the place of violence within the Catholic imagination. And by that I mean that there is, uh, from the earliest Christianity, there was this focus on martyrdom accounts, 
artistic depictions of the, of the deaths of the martyrs, which are incredibly gruesome at times. Okay, this is where we get the stories of people being ripped apart by wild lions in the arena and so forth, and some of these descriptions are lovingly detailed. <laughs> and uh, they're not done out of uh, sort of... Uh, because of the cheap thrills that the depiction of violence might give us, but because there's an underlying understanding that there's a kind of redemptive quality, a soteriological dimension to, to violence, because the, the violence of the martyrs ultimately points to the redemptive death of the Savior on the cross. So the idea here is that the depiction of violence is integral to our understanding of the order of the universe salvation history in the place of humanity within the cosmos. And that, uh, especially in, in the medieval West, if you, if you trace out the depictions of the crucifixion from, say, the 10th century to the 14th century, uh, you begin with a depiction of, of Christ on the cross where he's very, very serene. Uh, there is hardly any uh, marks of violence on the body. He seems so distant, so removed from the violent spectacle of the real uh, death on the cross that he seems almost not to be in the same plane as, as those who are killing him. Then there's an increase in the way in which the violence is depicted and a concomitant focus on the real sufferings of Christ on the cross. And, and there's a kind of a culmination in the late medieval, early Renaissance, where the violence done to the body uh, goes beyond anything we can possibly imagine being depicted in earlier centuries. I mean, we, we, we see the flesh being torn, we see the, the, the blood pouring out in buckets and so forth. And this, is, this, is, this art is presented in the churches. It's, it's, it's held up for public devotion, for contemplation. Lafferty would have grown up from his earliest years being exposed to this kind of theatrical but ultimately spiritual depictions of the most gruesome kinds of violence, which means that we can never... Uh, say that there, there, is no, there, is, there is no redemptive uh, spiritual uh, function to the way that he depicts these gruesome acts. So do you, would, no, go, go for it, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> would, are you suggesting that there's something in Lafferty's own um, experience that some sort of him bringing himself to the text that we get this violence? Or would you suggest that these five uh, humans are meant to be seen as martyrs who have maybe transgressed into the cosmic carnival in some way? Um, or I'm just trying to make the connection here between the deaths of these characters, uh, the violent deaths as snuffles kills them all, and Lafferty's engagement with violence in the Catholic imagination. Yeah. Well, it, look, it, part of the carnival was these performances, mystery plays, and so forth. And there's a kind of heightened ritualistic violence to many of these depictions. Uh, and the idea here is that the, the crowd wants for these ritualistic acts of violence 
sometimes quite bloody, to be enacted before the community. And there's a kind of cathartic element to these ritualized communal acts of violence. But there's also, a kind of, there's also the aesthetic and the spiritual dimensions because we know that they're ultimately just play acting. And it kind of releases this, I don't know, a bloodlust in, in, in the community, but it also elevates the ritualistic violence to a kind of sacrificial uh, religious dimension as well. So it's, it's ambiguous, and I think, I think the way that these, these characters are, are killed are, is both quite detailed, right? but it, there's also a kind of ritualism to it. And so they're being, they're being destroyed for the sake of our communal gaze, partly for low reasons, maybe because of th- there's, some, there's some aesthetic va- quality there to, to the shedding of blood, but also ritualistic because their deaths, just as in the carnival, kind of restores a balance to the cosmos. There has to be a kind of place for the ritualistic death to be enacted so that the greater harmony and order of the cosmos is maintained beyond the carnival. So something that's that's really inherent in the story, I think, that, that you've brought up here in regards to the, the carnivalesque violence uh, is really a notion that we as readers, but also perhaps the characters in the story are supposed to be learning something uh, through this. And I'll, I'll read uh, just a little bit of, of dialogue here. This is just before the violence begins. Uh, Georgina Chantel, uh, she comments that Snuffles is, is not merely a mimic, right? Not merely uh, this sort of bear who likes to pretend to read, uh, but that he is in fact serving as a mirror for the human explorers. And she says that we can't understand why we're serious until we know why he's funny. And, you know, she connects this, of course, with precepts of, of know thyself and, and look within uh, during her speech on this. And so I guess another question I really have, and I think, Brandon, I'll, I'll kick this one over to you. In, in what way does Snuffles the Bear help these characters come to know themselves? Maybe in what way is he actually a, a mirror? And, and maybe how does Snuffles help us, the reader? One thing we see is that the term mirror here is connected to the tools that uh, Georgina in particular uses to explore the world. She says her mirror is a microscope. Um, and one thing, and, and we see that as Snuffles kills off each of these people, they're all tied to their tools in some way. Um, John Hardy with the gun. Uh, Snuffles is concretizing both th- these people's belief in the world. He's forcing them to come to terms with a certain belief, uh, a certain sense of the cosmos. Um, but he's also acting in a mirror that he's revealing uh, the tools in which they need to operate in the world. To And maybe he's revealing the absurdity of those things as well. I think Snuffles is, is kind of an absurd uh, creature. There's a line in here that I love um, when Georgina is ref- uh, explaining to Brian about something that Snuffle said to her is that like he'll eat them together because they just fell in love. Um, and in, in fact, she says that um, at one point that she's silly for him, which is this other emphasis of fun in the story. Um, but this is also kind of like a, a funny cavalier poet sort of thing. This exchange of fluids automatically, or this merging of whatever automatically makes you unified as one. There's a real sexual element to that as well, where Snuffles is 
um, almost saying like, yeah, you guys can live together in me uh, eternally as, as one, as, as meat that I'll digest. Um, so I think, especially as we go through the narcotic phase, the carnival phase of the planet, Snuffles reveals more and more of the interiority of these characters. Um, and while the, the mirror, when they discuss it early on, is meant to reflect the face as we get further along, it, it reflects their interiority. And so I think that's, that's a part of what Snuffles is, is doing. Yeah, I think the, mir- the mirroring is because they're both, either, although they don't, they don't know it, they're both on a quest for, for gnosis, for saving knowledge. And the knowledge is we won't know the, 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 the seriousness of what, what is the true creation until we can pinpoint the warped, grotesque, carnival-like inversion of what a real cre- creator and what a real creation is, and we, re- we recognize that in Balada and we recognize that in Snuffles. So they're both, they're both on an epistemic quest in, the, in that sense, and that's what they reveal to each other. Uh, well, or perhaps I sh- we should say what is ultimately revealed to the reader, since most of the characters don't don't live long enough to to come to that realization. And 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 I, I'm particularly struck by the ep- the narcotic episode in in the story, because the 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 effects the co- the cognitive effects of the narcotic plants on the uh, on the humans very closely aligns with what Gnostics believed embodiment uh, did to, to, to our spirit and to our ability to know the truth. In other words, being, being in a body was already a kind of nar- narcotic. Uh, being, in, being physical was already a kind of drug that we imbibed that warped our sense of our encounter with reality to such a, an extent that we sort of walked around in a dream state never understanding the fact that the body is a prison house of flesh and that we need to escape into the spiritual realm of the true ideas. At the end of the story, the narcotic season in Balada comes to an end. And in a way, that's the closest that the human beings come to shedding the the ignorance and the lack of remembrance as to who they really are and they, I think they come to an inkling at that point of what the nature of, re, of reality is, what Balada is, and who Snuffles is. But it, just that we reach at that point, then, then, they're, then they're killed. So they never quite make that ultimate leap into, into true knowledge. And they never get to share that with anyone else. That's right. Right, and there are weird hints in the story um, where the spirit lives on in Balada, maybe un, unfettered by the human body uh Phelan um is explicitly referenced to as a ghost looking around examining his his body um maybe to me it reads as though he's in a state of purgatory but maybe there's hope for uh, an escape if that true knowledge can be found yes certainly certainly a state of purgatory but also from a Gnostic point of view is that his spirit refuses to leave the material prison behind and to ascend to its true abode in the realm of the spirit, it seems to still want to cling to the body and to the mater- to materiality for some reason. So I think we've got time for me to pester you guys with uh, with one more discussion question before we need to, to wrap it up. And Gregorio, I think since you brought up the, the drugs, I think we should point out that, of course, we've been taking Snuffles' speech at face value, but there is a puzzle in the story 
that begs us to question whether or not Snuffles is really communicating uh, with our two heroes. And so maybe let me just ask that question. Is Snuffles' speech merely a hallucination brought on by the narcotic plants, uh, which is what Brian Carroll believes? Or is it that these narcotic plants are allowing the characters to access a a deeper level of reality, a, a truer level of reality, the sort of thing that, I don't know, every other Philip K. Dick novel is about? No, I, I think the narcotics really do allow snuffles to communicate with the humans, but that the communication is utterly false. I think most of what snuffles ends up telling the humans is untrue because snuffles himself does not understand who he is. Snuffles thinks that he's the true creator god, that he is the, the, the god who, who, who fashioned the universe according to the forms. But he, but he himself is the first to... Uh, confess that his world is so messed up because he, had, he does not have access to any templates, to any blueprints, to any forms. And so he's not the platonic demiurge who has access to the forms. He's the Gnostic demiurge who, in falling into the material world, loses all contact with the spiritual realm and therefore is cut off from the forms and truly does have to create a, a, a warped, uh, damaged, uh, chaotic universe because there's no blueprint for the Gnostic demiurge to work from. So in, 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 in a way, he, he, in, in insisting that he's the true God, he reveals the depths of his ignorance and the fact that he is not, in fact, the God that he takes himself to be. I've never met anyone who claimed to be God who really was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up so that we can all go have some, some coffee and some cookies. Uh, I'm Glenn McDorman. I'm Brandon Buddha. Uh, and we really want to thank uh, Gregorio Montejo for joining us today. And thank you all for letting us crash your party. <laughs> <laughs>